The, um, the primary text for this sermon is not uh, directly from the Bible. It's, it's a picture, a picture that I think relates to the scriptures that were read earlier. Those biblical texts serve as a kind of foundation for the primary text, um, a particular vantage point from which to consider the primary text. The biblical texts read aloud today speak of the call to God's people to love, to love our families, to love our friends, to love our neighbors, to love the stranger, to love our enemies. It's in loving others that we fulfill the first commandment, to love God with all of our hearts and souls and minds and strength. Love of others is all the proof we need that we love God. Failure to love others is the proof we need that we don't love God at all. Now much has been written about what it means to love. Love is more than sentimentalism. It's more than feeling good about someone. It's more than being nice. Love sometimes means setting limits. Love sometimes includes discipline. Love may entail resisting another who threatens a friend or divorcing or separating ourselves from someone who abuses us. Love may even mean, in Paul's words, turning someone over to the devil or, in modern terms, letting someone hit bottom and so realize their need for salvation. All that to say love requires more than simply developing kind thoughts or saying warm words or submitting to his every demand or going all weak to knees when she walks in the room. Love requires intentionality, discernment, struggle, vulnerability, patience, perseverance, and a willingness to suffer and perhaps even to die. Yet it is to love that we are called And not only to love the lovable, not only to love those in whom we have some vested interest, not only to love those who love us in return, not only to love those who welcome our love or need our love or in some other way demand our love, not only to love the clean, the healthy, the faithful, um, and those with whom we have something in common, not only to love the righteous, the repentant, not only to love those with whom we agree or those whom we desire to convert or those we seek to draw into the community of faith, not only to love those whose ways of being make sense to us or garner our approval or in some other way measure up to our exacting standards, not only to love those who look like us, who love like us, who live like us, who vote like us, who shop like us, who worship like us. We are called to love all of them. Yes, we are every last member of every last category that we can come up with to serve our own preferences. We are called to love them all, but not only them, not just them. If we love only those who love us or look like us or worship like us or those we in some other way find comfortable, even the tax collectors love like that. If we love only those who are doing just fine, those who can settle for a shared cup of coffee but make no other demands on us. Even the pagans love like that. If we love only those whose relationships seem good to us or those whom our culture calls successful or those whose privilege is shared by us, even the scribes love like that. If we love only those who say the right things, believe the right things, and worship the right God, well, even the emperor can love like that. Now, again, we love them all. We do. The good, the pure, the successful, the fellow traveler, the fellow believer, the straight, the narrow, the keepers of the flame. We love them all, but not only them. If we love only them, we have to ask why God sent Jesus into the world. 
We could love those folks without any help from him. If we love only them, then what's the point of baptism, of dying and being raised into life in Christ? We could love such folks even if we're dead as doornails. If we love only them, then where is the kingdom of God anyway? I mean, who needs such a kingdom if we already know how to love such folks? The pagans love like that. Why not just be pagans and save God and everybody else a lot of cosmic bother? Again, we do love them. Make no mistake about it. We love them all, but not only them. See, I think we often assume that love is a kind of zero-sum game, you know, a, a game in which there are a limited number of points or dollars or benefits to go around so that if I get some, then that means there are less left over for you. So, say, 20 apples are at stake and I get eight. That means there are only 12 left over for everybody else. And when they're gone, they're gone. I think we sometimes live as though love were like that, like there was only a limited amount available to us and that we need to reserve it for those we think most deserve it. And who can deny that there are some people we love more than others? Some people maybe we even ought to love more than others. Spouses and parents and children and those we name most dear. Even so, it's not true to say that love expended on them necessarily limits our capacity to love those beyond such small circles. Or maybe that's not it. Maybe it's that we've learned over the years to value convenience above all else. And so we reserve our love for those it's convenient to love. People we have a connection to already, people who won't demand a whole lot from us, people who understand implicitly the extent and nature of the relationship, and so don't push the boundaries, don't ask for more than they deserve. People like us. And we can fool ourselves into thinking that love is convenient. It's efficient, it's clean, it's tidy. But loving everybody, family and friends, neighbors, strangers, enemies, that's not convenient. That's not efficient. It's messy. It's time-consuming. It's hard. But that's the love we're called to. A messy, inconvenient, inefficient, hard, complicated, painful, awkward, self-sacrificing love. Love that takes us places that decent people aren't supposed to go. Love that embraces people decent Christian folks aren't supposed to embrace. Love that is scandalous and not for its stinginess or its limitations, but for its extravagance, its lack of conditions. Love that eats with sinners, welcomes the outcasts, touches the untouchable, offers a drink to the thirsty, and does not close the door against anyone. That's the kind of love we are called to. So the question is, can we see ourselves loving that way? Can we imagine ourselves loving that way? Can we imagine ourselves laying aside every barrier, every logical argument, every wall, every righteous reason, every biblically based argument against inclusion? Can we imagine that? Can we imagine loving like that, living like that, following the command to love to that extent, choosing to err on the side of welcome, to err on the side of embrace, to err on the side of love, to love that extravagantly, that generously, that unconditionally, and trusting God to sort everything out in the end. Can we imagine loving everyone and leaving the saving up to Jesus? Can we imagine that? Well, it was several weeks ago that I first saw our primary text this morning. It was on some website or other. And shortly after the assassination of Osama bin Laden, 
shortly after all the puffed uppery uh, in Washington, all the self-congratulation, all the America is back rhetoric, that's when I came across uh, this picture. And Harley, I'm going to ask if you would turn these front lights down so it's Now, for the sake of our tender ears and eyes, I removed the accompanying caption. Um, it used a common vulgarity to, to make the point that Jesus was yet again irking his American constituency by demonstrating the heart of his radical Middle Eastern philosophy by holding Osama bin Laden in his arms. Well, despite the best efforts of we North American Christians, even those of us who firmly believe that we are called to love our enemies, Jesus remains quite capable of shocking us with the extravagance of his embrace. Loving our enemies too easily becomes an abstraction, vaguely attached to our commitment to nonviolence uh, and our unwillingness to serve in the military. And we rightly wince at the shrill voices of bigotry that so often dominate public discourse. We rightly uh, say, well, that's not us. It's not us. We don't think that way. We're called to love our enemies, not hate them. And, and I say good for us, resisting that kind of rhetoric and, and naming the fact that we don't agree with it. I think those are necessary and important steps along the path of faithfulness. But even we can be shocked by Jesus and his all-encompassing embrace. Now, I've stared at this picture so long and so often that it seems to have sort of permanently set up camp in my brain. It haunts me. It tells me that no matter how wide and broad and deep I imagine the love of Jesus to be, my imagination is still too small. No matter how extravagant I imagine his embrace to be, his embrace remains too small. This picture haunts me. It speaks to me. I believe with the voice of a ghost, the Holy Ghost. So there's Jesus, big, burly dark, bearded, his face turned slightly away from us. His eyes seemed to be closed, his head bowed, his arms wrapped around the shoulders of Osama bin Laden. And his arms, his embrace, they seem light to me, as if he's aware of the fragility of Osama bin Laden, the fragility of that human being in his arms. And, and is there a hint, just a, a hint of a smile on Jesus' face? Maybe. Maybe not. I, I can't tell. But... Then there's Osama bin Laden. Oh, Osama bin Laden. Small, gray, arms struggling to enfold the whole of Jesus, his head on Jesus' shoulder, looking sort of into the middle distance at something beyond the scope of the picture, maybe even something at work inside of himself, some hidden thing coming into being. And the look on his face, the look on his face, that's what stops my heart for a beat every time I look at it. That's what makes me cry. There's such peace, such rest, such joys, forgiven, embraced, loved, loved, loved. Jesus and Osama bin Laden, Osama bin Laden and Jesus, caught in the moment of embrace, the moment of surrender, the moment of love. Now all sorts of objections immediately come marching into my head, banging on their drums and demanding that I come to order. But he's a Muslim. 
He plotted and instigated and, and carried out the murder of thousands of people. He did not repent. He did not say the sinner's prayer. He does not deserve to be held in Jesus' arms. It's not right, and it cannot stand. This embracing cannot stand. All of the objections that I've learned by heart, many of them biblically based, many of them theologically sound, and not to be easily set aside or dismissed, but underneath them all, I, I discover some fear, fear of betraying my faith, fear of what you and others will think of me if I give the wrong answer, fear of being seen as a heretic or a traitor or just another mushy liberal with no spine to speak of, no dogma in the fight for what is good and true and decent, fear that this picture may be a prophetic word, a word set to topple all of my certainties, all of my commitments, all of my relationships, all that I've come to believe that I believe. But even deeper down, deeper down, where I really don't want to go, there's another fear, a, a primal fear, a fear that this picture has it all wrong, that there's no way Jesus would ever hold Osama bin Laden, no way that Jesus would ever embrace Osama bin Laden, no way that Jesus would ever love Osama bin Laden, no way that Jesus would ever love me. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For all have sinned. All have sinned. All have sinned. That's what links this picture, a picture of Jesus hugging Osama bin Laden. That's what links this picture to my own fate, my own destiny, my own future, my own salvation. All have sinned. Now here come the objections again, even more loudly this time. But your sins cannot compare to those of Osama bin Laden. You're a Christian. He was not. He's a murderer. You're not. His sins go far beyond anything that you've ever dreamed of, even in your most, well, worst moments. On and on they go, those objections trying their best to talk some sense into me. All have sinned. Osama bin Laden sinned. I sinned. You sinned. All have sinned. That simple Bible fact tells me that I, that we all, have something at stake in the truth or the falsity of this picture. If Osama bin Laden can be held in Jesus' arms, if Osama bin Laden can be embraced by God's firstborn son, if, God, if Osama bin Laden is loved by Jesus Christ and the God who sent him, then so can I be loved. I can be held in Jesus' arms. I can be embraced by God's firstborn. I can be loved by Jesus the Christ and the God who sent him. Jesus, Osama, and me. But if Osama bin Laden is beyond Jesus' arms, if Osama bin Laden is beyond that embrace. If Osama bin Laden is beyond that love, then I am too. We are too. All have sinned. All have sinned. All have fallen short. And it doesn't really matter if, if we've fallen short a little bit or a lot. All have sinned. All have fallen short. The only thing, the only thing that can save us is the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God that such love is freely given, extravagantly given, and not withheld from anyone, not from Osama bin Laden, not from me, not from any of you. For God so loved the world, for God so loved the world that God gave the only Son, that whosoever believes on that only Son, Jesus the Christ, whoever believes will not perish but will have eternal life. God did not send that only Son into the world in order to condemn the world but that the world through the Son might be saved. God's desire, God's will, God's dream for humanity is that we will all be saved 
every last one of us, Osama bin Laden and me included. And here come the objections once again. Whosoever believes in him, there's your line. There's your line. There's your boundary. Did Osama bin Laden believe? And so on. Again, important, important objections, biblically based, theologically necessary objections not to be brushed aside or dismissed. And yet, and yet, the love came first, right? I mean, isn't that what it says? The love came first. For God so loved. The love came first. And that's what gives me hope. Like the father comes running to meet his wayward child and embraces him with all love before the foolish child can even say he's sorry. So God started moving toward us from the dawn of time, pursuing us in love, calling to us in love, embracing us, gathering us up like a hen gathers her chicks, and all before we even had the sense to know that we needed any such thing from God at all. The love comes first. It always has. Which means I think that this picture is telling us a truth, whether we can wrap our minds around it or not. God's love, the embrace of Jesus, has always been there, just waiting to draw Osama bin Laden in, even before Osama bin Laden knew that he needed that love. Long before he ever dreamed of such love, it was there. That embrace was there. Now, the believing and the saving, well, that's what comes next. That's what comes next. But even if they never come, even if they never come, that love is still there. First and last, that love is still there. There for Osama bin Laden, there for me, and there for all of us. We so easily forget that, I think. We so easily reverse the order of things. We, we so easily insist that we earn God's love by believing that our belief is primary. The belief of others is primary. That they must earn our love by believing. Well, we never say it that way because it sounds bad. We would never say it that way, but I think we often live that way. We often love that way. We so often justify our failure to love by the failure of the other to measure up in some way or the other. We so easily limit our love to only those who believe like us, think like us, live like us, worship like us, etc. And we might say that God loves Osama bin Laden. We might say that Jesus loves Osama bin Laden. We might even say that we love Osama bin Laden. But to actually pull him to us in love, to actually step across every single line that separates us and embrace him, not on your life. At least not without some serious negotiations, prior agreements and so forth, to make sure we're bargaining in good faith. And truth be told, none of us obviously are in a position to love Osama bin Laden, not really, not in the flesh, and not even before he was killed. But I think the question holds, what are the limits to our love? How is our love bounded? What are the limits to our love? As Brother Merle Good asked us some weeks ago, who really are our enemies? Really, not in some national or cosmic sense, but personally in, in a right-in-our-faces kind of way. And last Sunday, Sister Valentina Satveri asked us to consider who it is we embrace and, and who it is we exclude and God's call away from exclusion toward embrace. And this morning, I, I asked the same question again, only this way. What are the limits to our love? Here's where the picture helps me, I think. I, I said earlier that our imagination 
is too small. No matter how wide and broad and deep we imagine God's love in Christ to be, it is inevitably too small. Our love is, I believe, too often limited by our inability to sufficiently imagine the scope of God's love. Now, some of that's because we're human beings, right? And so we can never encompass the fullness of God. But some of that, I think, is driven by our own prejudices regarding who's worthy of God's love, who's worthy of Christ's embrace, and so who's worthy of our love and our embrace. We set the boundaries of our love, and then we whittle our image of God down to justify those boundaries. We determine who we will embrace and whom we will exclude, and then we reduce Jesus to a size that's compatible with both. We do so unconsciously much of the time. This is not some sinister conspiracy on the part of Christians. It's an unconscious thing. It's a human thing. We set limits on God's love, and so on our own. We set limits on our own love, and so cut God's love down to fit. And then this picture pops up on my computer screen and reveals the truth, the truth that I resist so very well. This picture pops up and reveals the shocking, extravagant, and unconditional love of Christ Jesus for even the chiefest of sinners. And the boundaried, stunted, limited nature of my own love is revealed. Jesus holds Osama bin Laden to his breast, and I withhold that same embrace from someone because they don't look like me? Jesus embraces Osama bin Laden and and gives him utter and perfect peace, and I exclude someone because their relationship they cherish doesn't look like mine? Jesus loves Osama bin Laden before Osama bin Laden ever took up a gun or plotted a murder. And I refuse to love the neighbor across the street whose politics that I find unsavory? Really? Jesus loves public enemy number one. And I can't bring myself to love the co-worker who I think is undermining me. I can't bring myself to love the, the kid who mocks me. I can't bring myself to love the parent who doesn't understand me. You see what I mean? This picture and the truth that I think it portrays, it it reveals the shabbiness of my own love. It reveals the failure of theological imagination that's so prevalent among us, a failure that leaves us with a tiny Jesus and a skimpy God and a threadbare love that cannot warm the world at all. This picture, I think, pokes us right where we need to be poked and tells us that despite our claims to the contrary, we are all still fallen far short of the kingdom of God. This picture pokes us in the eye and tells us to look again. And that, sisters and brothers, is very good news. It's good news. It's good news when our pretensions are shattered. It's good news when our imaginations are stretched to the breaking point by the sheer size of God's love and God's promise. It's good news when our love is revealed for the poor, thin, weak, and limited thing it is. It's good news to be made angry by an image that makes claims that we would prefer not to believe. It's good news. Because suddenly we find ourselves in full light, exposed, unprotected by our theological sunscreens and our biblical parasols, exposed to the light of Christ, a light that reveals but also heals, a light that burns but also makes new. And I believe it is in that light that we can once again begin the holy process of turning around, repenting, taking up the cross, following after Jesus, a Jesus who is so much bigger than we can imagine, whose love reaches farther we can ask or think, a Jesus capable of loving us all, every last sinful, fallen, wayward one of us, a Jesus who calls us 
to try, to try, just try for once and for all to lay aside every last hindrance to love, to trust, to really trust that the saving belongs to God and to love recklessly, extravagantly, as if there were nothing to lose because there is nothing to lose and so become ever more like the God who first loved us. Well, there it is. A picture that, for me at least, is worth way more than a thousand words. A picture that I still find terrifying, frankly, in its claim. A picture that speaks to me, I think, in the voice of the Holy Spirit. A picture that calls me, and that I believe calls us, to think again about the wideness of God's love, the wideness of God's mercy, and the narrowness of our own. A picture that calls me, that calls us to repent and so learn to love all over again. No more limits. No more boundaries. No more walls. No more excuses. No more exceptions. No more arguments, theological or otherwise. Just love. Complicated, messy, inefficient, inconvenient, impossible to imagine love. Love freely given to all and to each, family, friends, neighbors, strangers, enemies, all loved, all loved, all loved, all loved. Loved by Jesus, loved by me, loved by all of us. May God make it so. Amen.